Hey everybody and welcome to Conversations with Healthcare Heroes. This is part two of an interview I conducted with Dr. Josh Watson, who is a gastroenterologist at East Cooper Medical Center in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Part one was about Josh's background. Part two, we get into really what it's like to be a gastroenterologist in private practice. We talk about some of the changes in healthcare um, and we get into some of the technology and, and there's some really cool stuff coming down the road and it's actually already being used now uh, in his field. So hope you enjoy. As always, the views expressed on this program are opinions of the host and the guest. They're not meant to serve as medical advice in any way, shape, or form. And individuals that are seeking medical advice, guidance, and expertise for questions, concerns relating to their own personal health should always consult a physician. So tell us about kind of where you're at now. You're at East Cooper Medical Center. And, and how long have you been been there? Yeah, so uh, so when I started here, it was a small private practice. It was three three older physicians who yeah. kind of later in their practice, they opened this practice, you know, in 1984. So they're well-established, kind of just focusing on Mount Pleasant, this side of the Charleston area. And, um, and I was drawn to it really because the way they had set up their practice, it was very, they were very conscientious about patient care and practicing good medicine, but they also still had a good quality of life where, mm. um, where they could, you know, coach their kids baseball team if they wanted or, right. or kind of have a life outside of medicine, which I think is, is very important. It's so easy to get burned out in this profession. Um, and so that really appealed to me. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, it started in 2015. Um, the, the guy that I kind of took the place of retired maybe six months after I started. We got a new guy to join us and then another guy in our practice retired. So we kind of stayed at three physicians. And then uh, a couple of years ago, one of my, my one of the, that partner that came on, he's, he's written a book and has a you know big online presence and does all these online teachings and he kind of came to the point that he wanted to do that instead of clinical medicine and so kind of out of the blue he left our practice which kind of oh, wow. left us in a tough situation because I had this my other partner you know he's he's kind of at the end of his career was planning on retiring and and leaving and we were trying to find a replacement for him well meanwhile my other partner leaves and so I'm stuck here in this small private practice, knowing one partner wants to retire and, and, you know, yeah. with our lease situation and the finances of it all and the, in the current medical environment, there was just no way I was going to keep this practice alive with just me. And, sure. and then you're, you know, on call 24 seven, that's just not tenable long-term. Yeah. So I, I kind of got to this point where I was stuck. Like, do I just ditch it and totally start over at another practice or move or, or do I try to keep this practice alive? And it was it was really a, a a tough decision for me because the reason I chose this practice was for all the reasons I said. Like this is my like my dream job as far as lifestyle and how they yeah. set practice and everything. And I really didn't want to lose that. When I looked at other practices here in the Charleston area, um, I just I just really felt like I, I wouldn't be happy. You know, a lot of and it's in every practice, but a lot of practice, especially GI practices, are just set up to to see patients. And it's just, mm -hmm. a you know, turning patients over, doing a lot of procedures and um, 
and, and really, you know, it, I don't know. I just couldn't practice medicine that way. The way I am, um, I, you know, and, and pun intended, I'm very anal. I'm very thorough. I'm an <laughs> anal guy. I, I, I didn't bring it up. You brought that up. That's, that's right. good. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I just, I, I, I'm very conscientious about my building yeah. rapport with patients and really um, spending a lot of time with my patients. And I'm not, I couldn't be on this kind of churn and burn schedule yeah. where all you do so, is try to get through as many patients. Yeah. Um, to get so an idea, how, yeah, real quick, what, how, like typical day in that practice patient load for you would be about how many folks when you're in a clinic all day? Yeah. So if I'm in, if I'm in clinic all day, um, I'm probably, you know, I see patients like on the half hour. So Typically, so I might see anywhere from twelve to sixteen patients. Yeah, so you're getting, you are getting a lot of time. Yeah, with them, yeah. and then do you have uh, procedures kind of built in half days at, in the office, yeah, or do you guys? It, do... it varies. I mean, sometimes I'm just doing clinic all day or procedures yeah. all day. When I'm doing procedures all day, you know, I also do anywhere from like ten to fourteen procedures in a day, kind of again yeah. on thirty minute intervals. But and clearly, I, keeping that. A, yeah. And I also, you know, I have a, a nurse practitioner that works with me. So when I'm in clinic, I'm also seeing yeah. patients with her as well. So, um, but it's at a very comfortable pace for me. I like to practice yeah. at a pace where I can see a patient, not feel like I'm rushed to, to get mm -hmm. them out the door and not be thorough. But I also have time to, to do my notes and stuff when I'm in clinic. I see, you know, right. some of my colleagues, I, I honestly don't know how they do it long term because you'll, you know, some patients or some doctors will see, you know, 20, 30, 30 plus patients in a day. And, and then you're at home at night finishing charts and stuff. And, and, you know, so you're not only are you working those, those hours in clinic, but then you get home and you've got all these charts to do and, and you're kind of ignoring your family or can't do anything else because of right. all that. Yeah. And I, I would absolutely just be miserable if I had to do that. And some, you know, some GI doctors, they schedule procedures at like 15 minute intervals and stuff. And I'm like, you know, I, I just couldn't practice medicine and feel in, and sleep at night. If I practiced that way, I would, right. I'm so conscientious about if I'd miss something or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just wouldn't be comfortable. So for me, I am, I'm way more comfortable practicing at this pace that I'm comfortable at, even if it means I'm not making as much money um, because I'm enjoying my job. I'm not getting burnt out. I'm yeah. still having good family time and I can enjoy what I'm doing. Well, I'm sure your patients appreciate that. And you mentioned, you know, the relationship element of, and that is yeah. seems like it's, it's not necessarily lost, uh, but it, it's not what it probably used to be, right? Yeah. Because of the way the system is set up nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest things I hate about our medical system is it's all yeah. driven towards volume, not quality. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, there's all this talk about quality measures and everything like that. And it, as a doctor, it's kind of frustrating because a lot of these things they call quality measures are really fluff. They make absolutely no difference to patient care. You know what like, do you mean? Well, for instance, like, you know, some of the quality measures we have now for some of the, you know, ever since the Affordable Care Act was passed, there's certain metrics you have to meet. Otherwise, your Medicare reimbursement is going to get dinged. Mm, um, right. But some of them have absolutely no difference as far as how you take care of a patient. Like, for instance, like some of the quality metrics we track now is if my medical assistant documents a BMI. You know, so they just have to put in a weight, document a BMI, say we have gave them some 
handout on lifestyle modifications or something. And that's a, you know, little check the box on something we do. But if you can tell me how that improves the GI care that I give, right. I'd love to hear it. But it, impo- but it impacts your reimbursement. Yeah. Which is why you oh, have yeah, to feel totally. you have to do I, it. I, if we don't meet yeah. these metrics, then I'm digging yeah. 2%, 3% or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, that's gotta be frustrating. And, and there's, and there's all kinds. Of, so that's just one little example. Yeah. There's all kinds of examples. And the frustrating thing is it takes time and resources. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a medical assistant that has to take that time to, to check all these little boxes and put it in the computer. And, and, um, and it adds these layers onto our visits that are just unnecessary in my view. I mean, some of it's good. Yeah. You want to know patients weight and document certain sure. things, but, but there there's in certain ways it's, it's really overkill or it's, it's not going to impact if I diagnose and treat their condition correctly. And, right. um, and it, it kind of takes away from, from the care in a way, because you're, you're pulled in so many directions and it gets to be where you're so focused on your chart and your electronic medical record and making sure you, you document all these little boxes that you you're not focusing on the patient. And I think that just is a detriment to the patient's care, not a, not a boon to it. So, yeah. uh, and, and it's, and, you know, it's like that across the board in medicine, even, even, you know, in the, in the operating rooms and procedure suites and stuff, you know, it, it's just all these little things where you're so focused on your computer and not the patient. Um, it, it's just, it gets cumbersome and it, and it really takes more time than it should there. And, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any, um, you know, like, um, there shouldn't be any safety measures or little safety checks and stuff yeah. like that, but there gets a point where it's over the line and it's overkill and it doesn't yeah. help patient. Yeah. Like, are, are you focusing on the patient or are you focusing on making sure that this form is filled out correctly? Right. You know, for, yeah. for a purpose, it's not going to improve the patient care. It's, yeah. you know, to, for other, other, uh, agenda. <laughs> so, and then, yeah. I mean, on the, and the other aspect of medicine I've really been frustrated with is, you know, our reimbursements for doctors, they, they haven't really gone up. So your, you know, your reimbursements sure. don't go up every year. It's not keeping up with inflation. But your costs go and, way up, But our right? costs go way up. So yeah. like as a private practice, when I, when, you know, as a, in a private practice, I'm a business owner. So I own right. this business. I still have to pay my employees. I have to give them pay raises, bonuses, and all this stuff. And so every year your costs go up. But my reimbursement doesn't go up and I mean, maybe goes down, especially in relation to inflation. So what that means is if I'm not seeing more patients or doing more procedures, then my yeah. salary is going to go down. Right. Um, and, and I'm not complaining. I mean, my, I make a good salary, but I think on a whole in the medical field, the drive is is just to see more and more patients. It's that not seems to be the only more. fixed. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and. And, and I don't know, it's just, I, I don't know how it's going to go, but you see now there's, there's a lot of doctors that are leaving the field or, or getting out and doing something else with their MD degree, yeah. because it's getting so fresh. If you, if you were around, you know, medicine before and didn't go through med school in this environment, then it is, it is so frustrating to you You're just banging your head against the wall and doing all these things that, you know, do not add the patient. Right. Well, you get to think too, like how many physicians are like maybe your, one of your partners that is yeah. near retirement age. I mean, that, that yeah. generation of, that's the largest generation the country's ever seen. So it's, yeah. you're, they're going to have the most doctors, they're going to have the most bankers, most whatever position when, when that generation retires, 
like, yeah, we're, we're going to have some challenges. In fact, these folks want to get out earlier due to whether it was stuff from COVID or the, or the, the yeah. technology or the, the things you're talking about. Uh, yeah. What incentives they have to stick around any longer uh, unless they have to. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I mean, we're already, even before this, we're in a doctor shortage. And it's right. only it's only getting worse as our population grows and yeah so, um, what is there anything on that end you guys are seeing that's being done are you, are you guys seeing more like adverse advanced uh practitioners or um what what do you see happening on that on that end yeah i think i mean there's been an explosion in the use of advanced practitioners um so i mean and that's good and bad i mean i think yeah the you know these um like nurse practitioners, physician assistants, I think they can serve a very good role and purpose and, and help. Um, but it, I feel like it's almost getting to the point where um, in some situations we may be using them beyond you know, their, I don't know how to say this, but um, beyond what they're trained to do maybe mm -hmm. without appropriate supervision. Um, as a physician and, and you know, I, I use a nurse practitioner. I have an excellent nurse practitioner. I think, I mean, uh, she really adds a lot to our, our clinic and what she does. And we, we utilize her in clinic. We had a, a physician assistant before her that was excellent. And I think, um, you know, they, they really have helped us provide good care and give good care. And so I'm not like trying to bash. Oh, no. Yeah. I practitioners, yeah. but what I have seen is we see more and more like nurse practitioners and stuff come on and kind of take on these primary care roles. A lot of times when they're not even supervised by a physician, they're just kind of practicing independently. Um, one of the things that I've seen I've been worried about is they, um, they, they kind of practice and, and they don't really, they don't really understand what they don't know. And I think one of the, one of the most important things as a doctor and what's, what's hammered in our training throughout medical school and residency and fellowship is you have to know what you don't know and when you have to call for help. And you have, and you have to know if I order a test, what am I going to do with the result of that test? Why am I ordering this test? You don't just order tests to throw something against the wall and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the most frustrating things for me as a doctor is a lot of times I see some APPs, not all, of but course. some, yeah. they, they kind of order tests unnecessarily or they order them without really knowing what the results mean. And then they, they, they then uh, don't know what to do with those or they, they, they shoot yeah. off inappropriate consults because of these. And, um, and again, I'm not saying that's, you know, that's all APPs or, or anything, but right. it's becoming more and more of a problem as we see, you know, them come more and more into these. Um, you think that's, they, it's just a way of, of, of just a difference in the, the kind of training that they yeah. go through and, and the, right. I mean, it's just, yeah. Yeah. It's the, I think it's the, it's the, it's the training they go through the, the clinical experience they get before being put mm -hmm. in these roles. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for what you get and what you get out of going through med school. I mean, it's really challenging to get in med school. Not everybody makes it into med school. Right, like, right. You know, there's a weed out process where you weed out the, the people that, that can't cut it. And and, um, and as you're going through, like I said, it's just it's hammered into you. You get all this clinical experience and, um, and knowing kind of what to do in situations or why you were 
certain tests, how to interpret things. And I think some of that is lacking in, you know, yeah. in the training for nurse practitioner or physician assistant, not to say that they're not needed or they're not useful because they are, and we right. definitely need them, especially with a doctor shortage. But I, I think we're kind of at this precipice where maybe sometimes they have too much autonomy and not enough supervision and it, and it actually is costing the healthcare system more right. um, because of that the knowledge base difference and almost like you, know, you got kicked you got kicked your coverage so to speak yeah you, kinda... well, what frustrates me is you know a lot of times you'll follow like some of these um some of these like nurse practitioners and stuff that are on social media and stuff they post these memes kind of trying to say that they're just as good as a doctor, you know, or they're, they're trained yeah. the exact same as a doctor and that, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, what do they say? Like heart of a nurse, brain of a doctor or something, all these different things trying to reach yeah. this equivalency with doctors. And I don't know, some of it to me seems like a little bit of hubris that probably shouldn't be there. And I think any, yeah, you know, I could see, I, I could see you feeling that way. Yeah. And if it, I think if you, if you're too prideful and arrogant and don't really, and you don't really know where your blind spots are, it's going to mm. lead to, to trouble. Yeah. And, um, I, yeah. I think the, when, when these APPs are utilized best, it's, it's when they're in a situation where they don't have to overextend themselves. Sure. They have backup where they can, you know, ask questions and, and know, and maybe, um, make sure they're ordering something right or make sure they're thinking about something right. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think that's it's an interesting trend to, to, cause you know what I mean with the demographically, we, you know, we're going to need, we're already in a shortage and yeah, I'll be interested to see what sort of changes are made to maybe training or, uh, just different programs to, to kind of mitigate some of these issues. Um, curious to get your thoughts on any, any kind of trends, new trends in, in GI, that or, or, or technologies or therapies that uh, you're introducing to patients? Uh, well, I think, you know, one of the biggest ones we're seeing, not just in GI, but in other areas is artificial intelligence. Mm. So, um, and just how we've been incorporating that into, into clinical practices. It's really been amazing to see because we're just, we're just kind of at the forefront of it now and what yeah. we do. Um, so that's, so what's that look really like? Cool. I've not heard, I've not heard this before. So, yeah. So, uh, so one of the first things we're using it for in GI is just on colonoscopies with polyp detection. So they, you know, we've got these systems now where as you're doing a colonoscopy, it'll, it'll kind of highlight a polyp or something. And, uh, and so they've used, you know, they, they've used all these thousands of videos to train this, um, computer software to recognize polyps or mucosal abnormalities. And then as you're doing a colonoscopy, it helps you identify and it kind of draws your eye to it. So wow. it can help improve polyp detection rate and things like that. And I think um, in the future, it's also going to be utilized to, to see kind of other things like um, dysplastic lesions or something. So let's say, for instance, like inflammatory bowel disease, we do surveillance colonoscopies to look for these areas of mucosal abnormalities that are kind of headed towards cancer, but maybe they're very subtle or you can't see them well. And it's the same thing on an upper endoscopy. When you've had chronic reflux, sometimes you get what's called Barrett's esophagus, which is a change in the esophagus that can be a, um, a risk factor for esophageal cancer. 
And so um, I think they're also gonna have some type of artificial intelligence that'll help us identify maybe problem areas in that mm -hmm. mucosa that we should target biopsies and things like that. So that's one of the areas. There's another one. So for, um, for the Barrett's esophagus, for instance, there's this company now um, that you take the biopsies, you send them off and they, they actually take the pathology slide and they do this um, imaging of it, again, using artificial intelligence to, to kind of risk stratify and tell you if there's, um, you know, if there's changes in this biopsy specimen that are higher risk to prevent, progress towards esophageal cancer. And so we can use that to shape our surveillance intervals and things like oh, that's, that. Wow, that's fascinating. So, how long How long ago did this start? The that Probably in the last few, I mean, it's probably been under testing and stuff for the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, but it, mm. it just came like prime time and available widely in the last couple of years. Okay. So, Where do you see it going? from here? I mean, there are other, a lot of other areas you think yeah. it'll be implemented in, in diagnostics yeah, I mean, and detection? Gosh, honestly, I, I, I'm very, I, I don't really know a whole lot about this area in front, as far as development in it. Yeah. But, I mean, there's so many things it could be used for. Um, I, I don't even, I don't even know from, I mean, the surveillance issues are one thing, but, um, and just, you know, using it detection wise, I mean, it, it could run anything probably from you know, imaging studies to biopsy studies to who, who knows, who knows what, but it, it basically is it, it like augments human intelligence, you know, it, right. it, it takes this massive data set, you know, beyond what any one person's personal data set can be sure. and, and scans these things to, to kind of bring things to light for you. Well, especially if it's being constantly updated by additional yeah. scans and data right. from new patients. So, um, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of excited to see yeah. what other people come up with and how we can use it. Cause um, you know, I'm not even sure of all the possibilities. Yeah. I mean, I've highlighted a few, but I don't even know what else they'll use for it. Um, I mean, the other thing in the GI field is just our, the advancement in our equipment. So the fiber optic scopes, the high definition, um, high, high definition, uh, screens and views yeah. and stuff like that has really helped us, you know, be able to see what we need to see endoscopically. The, um, the, uh, we're using different, different technologies now for things like uh, esophageal motility and things and different type of imaging techniques to, to pick up um, motility disorder sooner. So um, those are some of the exciting things going on in the GI. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've, I've heard about too, um, is the kind of the emergence of, of infusion therapies in, in mm -hmm. G is that in a, some, some larger groups, you know, have infusion suites on, on site and, yeah. and some, some don't, is that something that you guys, do, do you have infusion uh, therapies? We, uh, we're kind of a smaller practice, so we don't have enough volume to, yeah. to have our own infusion clinic. So I'm, I'm usually referring to a, another infusion. What types of what types of therapies or products are are, are used in? in, uh, in well, in in my line of work, so inflammatory bowel disease is a big one where we use infusions. Okay. So there's there's several different medications that we use to treat inflammatory bowel disease that require infusions. Um, we some you know I give a fair amount of iron infusions for different things that cause iron deficiency. Um, there's, uh, 
you know, an infusion we use to treat um, refractory C. diff infection, C. difficile infection, yeah. um, things like that. Um, but yeah, and then, I mean, another, another big advance recently too, more in the oncology field has been all these immunotherapies. And oh, really? Okay. Tell me about yeah. that. So, uh, and again, I, this isn't like my area of specialty or anything, but we're kind of, um, we're kind of using these therapies that kind of spur our own immune cells to attack cancer cells. And it, and for certain cancers, it's been highly effective. Yeah. So, um, and we're, you know, other, you know, more of the older chemotherapies have failed, but these newer immunotherapies where you're kind of stimulating your own immune system to attack the cancer cells can be extremely successful. Um, so that, I think that's a, a huge area. Yeah. I think, and, and, you know, and honestly, another big area would be um, just, I think we're at the infancy of knowing like what the microbiome, your gut flora uh, can do and how that impacts our health and our immune system and things like that. Um, so that's another big area I see. And that's not necessarily infusion related, but um, but it's still it's a, it's a, a newer a cutting edge yeah. area, right? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. I think you know right now you're that. seeing a lot of companies come out that are studying the microbiome and trying to figure out um, how disruptions in the microbiome affect our health and our immune system and yeah and I'll, and a lot of it impacts your health in a lot of ways outside of the GI tract, you know, other immune mediated things or um, uh, other, other organ systems. Even. How much of, of your practice do you end up having discussions about nutrition and, and diet and proper hydration? And, and th is that, is that an element in what you guys do? It, yeah. I, mean, I think that's becoming more and more, um, like noticed and, and relevant in the GI world. I think, yeah. you know, a, a while, you know, 10, 20 years ago, nutrition was, was right. not really a focus in GI training or even medical school training. Yeah. And I think we're realizing more and more that that can, can definitely be a way you help people and, and really help prevent things um, rather than waiting until something happens and then treating it, but also a way in which you, you treat illness through, through diet, what you eat. Um, mm. And, and unfortunately, the G like GI training is still probably lacking in that area. So most of what I have learned from nutrition has really been self-learned um, and taught. But yeah, I mean, these days I am I'm utilizing a registered dietitian all the time. Oh, is that right? In your in the I mean, practice? As, a, as a physician, yeah. you know, we don't really have the time in a clinic visit to to educate somebody on sure. diet or different aspects of things. But there's a there's several things I'll use, you know, specific diets for treat. Like for example, one big one in uh, for irritable bowel syndrome, which is one of the most common functional GI disorders I see. Um, there's a very successful dietary approach called the low FODMAP diet. Um, but it, it requires a lot of buy-in from the patient. You really got to be motivated to follow it. Mm. And it's, it's not like a lifelong diet. You have to be restrictive up front. And then you kind of start to add back these things one by one to see what your food sensitivities are with the overall goal being to strengthen your gut and being able to eat a well-rounded diet. And, um, and so something like that, I mean, I, I just, I don't have the time in clinic to sit here and I right. and honestly, I don't even have the education to do it, to walk somebody through how you do this and the diet plan and all of that. So I, I rely heavily on registered dietitians that are trained in that and that's their sole focus to, to, to help yeah. 
with those kind of I mean, things. What, what sort of results do you, when the patient does buy in? I mean, what, what sort of timeline and what sort of results do you typically see? Yeah. Well, for that specifically, so for the low FODMAP diet and IBS, it's probably one of the most successful interventions that have come about in the last 20 years, honestly, I mean, more so than any drug or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so it's been very gratifying, but again, I mean, it's not the answer for everybody and you do mm. have to have, you know, a certain um, kind of desire and want to, to go down that path. Cause it's not easy. I mean, you got to modify your diet. You gotta, you know, go through this whole reintroduction phase. So um, it's not necessarily for everybody, but a lot of patients are looking for, for that answer, a nutrition answer and not just taking another pill or anything. Right. So, Right. Um, so, I, you know, for the right patients, there, I mean, I have a lot of patients that are very motivated by hearing that. Um, and it can yeah. be kind of a, a root cause fix. It's not just a medication that's kind of patching up or covering. Right. Um, right. Because if the lifestyle doesn't change, it's causing it issued. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, you're, you're yeah. going to be back in the same place, I would imagine. Um, yeah. And it, I think, you know, one of the problems is, all you know, you look at the American diet and the, the amount of processed foods and refined sugars and red meat. And, yeah. and the low fiber intake, all of that combined is just, it's horrible for our health. So do you have, is there a guidance? I probably should know this. So, <laughs> but is there, is, for, is there a, a kind of a guidance of, of how much fiber like per pound a yeah. human adult should, should intake, you know, just yeah. in a day? I well, mean, I think like if you, if you look at the, the guidelines, they recommend getting at least 25 to 35 grams of fiber a day it's right. not weight-based or anything it's 25 or 30 okay and honestly that's that's probably on the low end of what yeah. we should be taking in i mean in general we don't get near enough fiber in our diet i mean fiber is, it, i think it's extremely important for gut health it's yeah. it's you know fiber is a prebiotic so that's like prebiotic that's what kind of fuels your good gut bacteria um and so you need it to to kind of maintain a healthy uh, microbiome um, and in, in our diets, we probably do more to destroy our microbiome than help it with all the mm -hmm. antibiotics and you right. know, the, you know, all the chemicals we add to our foods and, um, you know, the antibiotics we give to farm animals and yeah. things like that. Um, we're just destroying the diversity of our, our gut flora. So, um, but that's one of the, you know, one of the best things you can do for your gut health is to avoid all the processed crap, eat more whole fruits, vegetables, and whole grains and, mm -hmm. and get more fiber. So it's, it's a higher fiber, lower fat and um, lower sugar type diet. Definitely. Um, yeah. But you know, everybody likes to focus on these low carb mm -hmm. you know, type diets. And I, I think it's kind of a detriment because everybody gets so focused on this you know, one like restricting carbohydrates or something. Yeah, we'll that, we'll track our overall picture. We'll we'll track our protein, grams of protein, right? To make sure we're getting enough to get, get our muscles up, right? Yeah. We'll track our carbs, but I'm thinking like, man, that fiber probably should pay attention to that number too. So you got me inspired. It'll um, help us, yeah. Yeah, right. And you mentioned in an offline conversation that the March is a special month for you guys. Yeah. Right. So so tell right. us what why is what tell us about March and the significance of March in the GI world. So, so March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month, and so every every March, if you start to look around, you'll probably see a lot of ads or or displays about colon cancer. 
So we really push colon cancer screening. And, um, and, and reason for that, honestly, is it's one of the few cancers that really we've got a great screening tool for. Like, mm-hmm. um, really, it's probably the most successful cancer screening we have when you look at across the board. Like even, you know, breast cancer, we've got mammograms, but it, it's got its issues. It's not perfect. Um, yeah. Prostate cancer, there's really not great screening for prostate cancer. Uh, lung no. cancer, you've got some CTs, but it's still very hard to, to diagnose yeah. early. Pancreatic cancer is notoriously hard to diagnose at an early treatable stage. But colon cancer is unique in that, you know, most colon cancers arise from these little benign polyps that start growing in your colon. And to go from a polyp to colon cancer in the average risk person typically takes a decade or more. Is so that something this, a patient would 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 feel and know is there, or you'd have no idea unless you did a, a, a colonoscopy? Right. Yeah. Typically, these are, are no symptoms at all. So, wow. you know, if you think about it, the the colon is a hollow organ. You mm-hmm. got this little bump. You know, almost looks like a mole or something that grows on the surface of the colon. You know, that's yeah. got to grow pretty large before you start getting obstruction, or even right. before it starts to get ulcerated and bleed and things like that. So a small little polyp is typically totally asymptomatic. Um, And so that's why we recommend screening for everybody, even if you don't have any symptoms, even if you don't have a family history, um, because colon cancer is one of the the most common cancers diagnosed today. So, you know, between um, men and women, it's it's like the second or third most common diagnosed cancer every year. And when you look at cancer deaths, it's the second or it's like the second leading cause of cancer deaths in America every year. So, um, but the fortunate thing is we've got this long window of time where Mm -hmm. we can go in, find these benign polyps, remove them before they ever have a chance to grow into colon cancer. And then you never get colon cancer. So we've got this long window of time to intervene. When should we start getting screened for that? And and like age age wise, is that kind of what you give a certain age? Yeah. So, you know, it used to be um, everybody got screened at 50. So 50 was kind of the age when you start screening. Well, over the over the last decade or more, we've kind of seen this trend where we're seeing younger and younger people get diagnosed with colon cancer. So um, so it used to be, you know, about 15 percent of colon cancers are diagnosed before the age of 50. So or yeah, um, or before the age of 40. even. But um, and so uh, and so that's, you know, statistically, we started at 50 because you would catch the majority of colon cancers if you started there. You know, there's a little bit of statistics involved because if you start too early, then you might, you know, not be, you might be overusing the test and not picking up enough. But if you start too late, then you're going to miss a lot of colon cancer as well. Um, I think the statistics finally pushed us to move it earlier a few years ago or even before that. So now we've moved it to the starting age of 45. Okay. So right now, the recommendation yeah. is at 45, you should start colon cancer screening. Um, now, if you have a family history, that puts you at increased risk. I was going to ask about that, right? Yeah, that's the so thing is genetics. A, yeah. If you have a first degree family member that's had colon cancer, then we typically recommend you start at age 40 or okay. 10 years before the age of diagnosis of that family member. Gotcha. So okay. That can, that can impact yeah. when you start screening. So. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Listen, I, you've been such a, a gracious guest and, and so uh, kind of to, to share so much time with us uh, uh, today. Um, thank you for, for joining us. Any, maybe one last thought or topic that, you know, maybe we didn't get to that you'd like to, like to weigh in on? Um, 
Well, oh man, one last topic. And I can have you on again. This is to be a one-time thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. We've talked about a lot. I think um, um, you know, thinking about who all is listening to to your podcast. I mean, not just doctors, but right administrators, maybe nurses and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, trying to trying to trying to come up with a a nice words of words of wisdom or anything. But I, you know, I think I think for me being in medicine and the the reason I chose this is really um, it, it's for uh, to help you know our fellow fellow man and um, and to to really um, help people feel better and do better and be able to to, um, to live a life without having to think about illness and things like that. So. Um, I think we could, in that vein, we could do a lot by stressing prevention, maybe more than um, than than diagnosing once you've already got a problem. I think probably right. one of our biggest problems in America is um, is just our sedentary lifestyles, our diets, and our um, and like obesity problem. And I think sure. if we can start to tackle those as a as a medical field and focus on these preventative things. I think we'll see a lot of benefits down the road. So I would love, like we're talking about nutrition and stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to really start seeing us focus more on that and talking about it and, and talking about things we can do as a society to, to help people uh, get educated on that and know more about that and, and simple things you can maybe do um, lifestyle wise to help prevent illness. And I think that'll, that'll go a long way and help our yeah medical field in the future in our society. I hope you're right. Yeah. You, you know, we tend to be very good at reacting to problems yeah. as a, as an American health system. Um, it'd be nice to get out in front of some of the stuff a little bit better. Maybe part of that's personal responsibility and, and yeah. education, right. And, and probably like you said earlier, motivation, uh, how, how motivated are you to, to make a change and, and uh, understanding kind of what's on the other side of that change. Yeah. So Good. Well, that's good. That's good. And the good thing about that is you never need a prior authorization. So. <laughs> <laughs> See, we went almost a whole hour before bringing up prior authorization. But I mean, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. We'll get. We'll tackle that another right. time. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. I tell another friend, man. My my grandfather was in medicine. You know, years ago, he he got out before uh, the HMOs and all that took over, and so it, trying to. I remember, you know, he died a couple of years ago. Me trying to explain to him what that was it, it it just didn't it it didn't add he didn't understand why why would i have to get a permission from you know so anyway yeah uh you just mentioned really about the guys who are retiring to remember the good old days he he remembered the the old old days that were you know before all that so uh <laughs> but anyway well listen i'll let you go thank you so much appreciate all that you're doing um and uh we really uh really appreciate your time and 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 uh the energy and all the all the wisdom you brought to us tonight um we'll have this out here pretty soon and uh thank you again for your service to our country um, I know it's probably probably been a while since I said that. I haven't seen it in a little while. So so thank you on the behalf of everyone listen. Thank you for serving us and, and we appreciate all the men and women all over the world that, that are continuing to do that, uh, you know, serve our protect our freedoms today. Special thanks to Dr. Watson for joining us on the program. Really hope you all enjoyed that. I know I sure did. Tremendous amount of insight uh, that he provided us. And to learn more about Dr. Watson and his practice, please visit eastcoopermedctr.com. 
To learn more about conversations with healthcare heroes, follow us on YouTube at Healthcare Heroes Show. Please direct all show inquiries to healthcareheroeshow at gmail.com.